0: Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus 32. We've been looking at the question, why is it so hard to believe in today's world? And perhaps you were thinking or wondering if I would deal with or focus on the Supreme Court's ruling this past week with regard to same-sex marriage as an example I won't, as I don't think it is a complex or complicated issue. As the apostles told the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. And the decision is, in fact, to me, an example of an overt obstacle or overt difficulty that we face in the modern world. I think we should be equally, if not more, concerned with subversive things that we may even fail to notice. Things that push us in a very different direction from what scripture teaches. Our text, I hope, will begin our thoughts in the matter of subversive trends. Look at the first six verses here in Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, that they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day... The people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. This is a familiar story and quite remarkable for the quick turnaround on the part of the Israelites. After 400 plus years of slavery, they are delivered. After the ten plagues, Israel leaves Egypt. In chapter 13, they are given a pillar of cloud, to guide them by day in a pillar of fire, to give them light and guide them by night. In chapter 14, they cross through the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. This passing, by the way, Paul refers to as baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In chapter 15, there is a problem with a bitter water source, which is remedied when Moses, as instructed by God, throws a piece of wood into it and the water becomes sweet. In chapter 16, there is a problem with food. And the Lord sends manna and quail. The manna Paul calls spiritual food. And so we have the two uh, elements of Jewish baptism and the Lord's Supper found here in the Exodus. In chapter 17 there is again a problem with water which is remedied when Moses strikes a rock and water comes out. In the same chapter, in chapter 17, Israel is attacked, attacked unprovoked by the Amalekites. But they are victorious over the Amalekites as Moses holds his hands up in prayer. In chapter 18, judges are appointed uh, to help Moses with dealing with the problems of the people. In chapter 19, Israel comes to Mount Sinai where they are consecrated. And yet, we read here in chapter 32, when Moses tarries on Mount Sinai, they they resort to idolatry. We might wonder how they could be so unwise after seeing what God had done to the idolatrous system in Egypt. I would just remind you that miracles are not the final answer to weak faith. Seeing great and spectacular miracles may encourage one for a bit, but it is not a guarantee of mature faith, a faith that will stand up against temptations. Israel had seen more than its share of the miraculous And yet their history is one of failure of apostasy over and over again. When the Lord first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And in fact, that's what happens. And one could argue this is a very wise move. The Israelites were not prepared to go into the promised land the challenges that they would face, and the temptations that they would face. They need to spend time, the covenant is being uh, put into effect, but they need, if you wish, a period of time to mature. They need to be prepared politically as well as spiritually for the problems they will face when they deal with the Canaanites. One of those problems is idolatry. In anticipation of this, In the ten plagues that we see, God demonstrates the impotence of idols. And if we had time, we could go through. But if you look at the plagues, beginning with the Nile, which was considered the source of life, it was divine. Each one of the plagues attacks a part of the idolatrous system of the Egyptians. But these lessons are quickly forgotten and it is demonstrated here in chapter 32, one of the darker moments in Israel's history up to this point. Because rather than spiritual renewal, rather than increased dedication, we find impatience. We find immaturity that leads them to idolatry and, one would say, rebellion against God. The process was very subtle. What we find is syncretism in which if you, almost opposing ideas are brought together um, into a synthesis of, of, of various forms. And you have the worship of the true God mixed together with idolatry here in chapter 32. The cause of idolatry we could see is in verse number one. Moses delayed coming down from Mount Sinai. We are told in Deuteronomy 9... That Moses was on Sinai 40 days and 40 nights. Um, It's a long time. Think about it. It's almost a month and a half. It's a long time for the Israelites not to see their leader. Their political leader as well as their spiritual leader. This is the man who had told them what the Lord was going to do for them the man who had been the focal point of the ten plagues against Egypt, the man who had been used by God to deliver them, to lead them through the Red Sea, to rescue them with water and with food, and finally to bring them to Sinai. For all they know, he could be dead. From what we know in Scripture, at this point, Moses is 80 years old, and he's on top of the mountain by himself. He could have fallen, he could have died of dehydration, of starvation, a wild animal might have gotten him, They don't know what's happened to him. At this point, it could have been the influence of the non-Israelites who joined them in the Exodus, or it could have been the influence of their time in Egypt. But they want something tangible. They want something they can see. And for a long time, they could see Moses, and now he's been gone for 40 days, and they can't see something, and they want something they can see. So they approached the high priest, Aaron, the older brother of Moses, by the way. He had been with Moses during the time of the plagues and during the time of the Exodus. So they asked him to make a god or gods for them. Um, You might wonder, as we read through the passage, why you find the plural. Well, the word used for God, one of the words that is used in the Old Testament is Elohim, which is plural, like cherubim, seraphim, and things like that. Usually, when we find Elohim plural, the verb is singular. But here we find, in fact, plural and plural verb, which means that they're talking about something entirely different. Their, Their thinking is wrong. And yet... I'm convinced they're still thinking about the true God. So in verse number 5, Aaron tells them tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He builds an idol and then says, tomorrow we're going to worship God, if you wish. We're going to have a festival to God. The request on the face of it seems ridiculous. How can one make a God? What you can do is to attempt to make a representation of a God, but not make a God. Now, a side note here, how many people in Israel participated in this rebellion, in this idolatry? If you look at verse number 28, near the end of the chapter, only 3,000 people are directly punished for this. Which implies that only a small number uh, of those in Israel participated in the events. Uh, But if you look at the very last verse of the chapter, you find that God sent an unnamed plague against all of Israel for the sin of these people. Aaron, who was the high priest, should have known better. He should have resisted the desires of the people. He should have instructed them. Um, but he did not. And again, I think he thought he could do a compromise. We'll build this golden calf, but we will worship God. And, and so we'll, there's something they can see, but they will participate in, in genuine uh, and true worship. I do want to be clear about something I just mentioned a moment ago. The fact that idolatry took place in Israel caused the whole nation to bear the responsibility of that guilt. Yes, Aaron was responsible. We see that 3,000 people are killed as a result of this. But in fact, God brought a plague against all of them. The process of idolatry is found in verses 2 through 6. They ask Aaron to make a god. One could argue he tries to discourage them by saying this is going to be a costly thing. You need to cough up some gold. Take the earrings out of your ears and bring all your earrings and but the people do that. Whatever plan he might have had at discouraging them did not work. He makes an idol in the shape of a calf. The end product is, um, well, we're actually not sure. Calf is probably not the best English word for this because in other places it's translated as a three-year-old bull. So it isn't a baby cow as such, but it speaks not of a fully mature, but of an animal that is in its strength. If you look at verse number four, we read, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Um, Is Aaron saying, are the people saying that this calf is in fact their god? One could argue that they're not saying that at all. But rather, as was the custom among some of the Egyptian systems, it is believed that the god was on the calf. It was on this three-year-old bull. So the bull is merely the vehicle for bringing the deity. And when you look at the Psalms, we read that God comes on the wings of the cherubim. So there's this idea that this animal simply represents the presence of God. So one could say it's, nah, we're not that comfortable with it, but it doesn't sound like like full-blown idolatry, that they're not really worshipping the calf, but that they're in fact worshipping God. Well, I think that's what Aaron intended, but I don't think that's what the people were thinking at all. Side note, almost 500 years later, Jeroboam, when Israel splits off from Judah, He makes two golden calves, or two golden bulls. And he says, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So, Aaron may have been thinking, vehicle for the divine, but it may very well be that the people are thinking, uh, Aaron, we don't care what you say, we're worshipping this image. This, in fact, represents our God. It is worth noting that they got up early the next morning and we are told that they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. This is interesting. And if you still have your Bibles open to Exodus, if you look at chapter 24, go to Exodus 24. This presents more background to what we're looking at here with regard to the golden calf or the golden bull. Beginning in verse number 1 of Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By the way, this is a precursor to what we just read. Uh, with regard to communion the blood of the new covenant this is the blood if you wish of the old covenant and from this passage we see that the law is given that the law in fact has entered into covenant with Israel the people of Israel had covenanted to, to do everything that the Lord had said they said we will obey but part of the reason I had a look at this is because they knew of fellowship offerings and burnt offerings so They've entered into a covenant, they know about all these things, and yet we find in chapter 32 this this idolatry. What happened? Well, what was done for the worship of God is simply transferred to something else. They had been told about burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and I would assume peace offerings, and now they simply take that which is intended for God and shift it over to another system where they can worship this golden image Idolatry is forbidden, not only in the Ten Commandments, but if you go to chapter 20, found this interesting. We're given the Ten Commandments, but then at the end, almost an addendum, there is a repetition with regard to idolatry. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Interestingly enough, do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. So God was very clear and yet somehow they thought, we'll take this new system that God has told us about sacrifices and we will do it here with this golden image. And then Aaron is thinking because the presence of God is there. In addition to their offerings, they sit down and eat and drink. There's nothing wrong with that. Read the rest of the Old Testament and you find this is something that is commanded. That is when someone brought their tithes and offerings to the tabernacle, they got to eat a portion of that in the presence of God. Eating is, is very important. But then they went beyond what God had instructed and they got up to indulge in revelry. The King James says they began to play. The verb is used suggests illicit sexual activity. So the process goes from wanting a visible representation, we want something we can see, to borrowing a representation from other religions and doing those things that are commanded by God in that context. And so it's mixing, if you wish, that which is right with that which is wrong. Why did they choose a calf or a young bull? Um, The fifth plague was, in fact, directed against livestock. This is the first plague that, in fact, um, means the loss of personal property. The first four plagues are more, uh, inconvenience isn't the right word, irritation, pain, but now there is the loss of private property. But there's more than that, and that is that livestock were considered sacred. One archaeological find in the 19th century found a series of 64 burial chambers in which sacred bulls had been buried. So, this is something they remember from their days in Egypt, a sacred bull. And yet, that's precisely what Aaron makes. Why does he do this? Again, I think Aaron is convinced that he can pull this off. He can satisfy their desires for something representational, something visible, at the same time, include the worship of the invisible God. That was his intent. The people had different ideas. Their thinking was not as nuanced, if you wish, as Aaron's. And in... We see this in their behavior, that they got up and indulged indulged in revelry. One writer put it this way, Aaron was faced with an unruly crowd that placed a demand on him. The solution of making an idol and calling it by God's name seemed fairly reasonable. I'll please them and still be doing the right thing. We'll have this golden image, but it will, in fact, the presence of God will be here in our worship. If you read the rest of Exodus 32, you will find that God did not see it that way, and Moses did not see it that way, and there were many in Israel who did not see it that way. If you go back to chapter 32, uh, beginning in verse 26, So he, that is Moses, stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Each man strap on a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. But as I said, there is more in the last verse of the chapter. And the Lord struck the people with the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. I don't think I've said anything today that you do not know. So, What does this have to do with us today? How does this affect us? Well, we've been looking at modernity and the various aspects of it. And some years ago, five years to be exact, at the end of our series on Jeremiah, I looked at the issue of being in exile. And a book that was of immense help to me in that study was written by Dale King called Sex in the Eye World, Rethinking Relationship Beyond an Age of Individualism. And in this book, he outlines three different worlds. The T world, or traditional world. The I world, or individualistic world. And the R world, or relational world. As Keane sees it, we live in the I world, which sees personal freedom as the highest value. And it resists boundaries of any kind. As my younger sister used to say to me, you're not the boss of me. And in the I world, nobody is the boss of me. I can do what I want. Individual freedom is the non-negotiable value of the I world. It focuses on self-fulfillment, which the Bible teaches is actually an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. It's a denial of our nature. We are created to be in relationship. We are not created to be individuals and to stand alone by ourselves. The church, however, I think has shifted its view of the gospel. We have gone away from a relational world to an individualistic world. We've lost a sense of community, of of the communal nature of the church, to it being a collection of individuals. I've said this many times, that the phrase, Jesus as your own personal savior, was intended, in my opinion, originally to point to Jesus as a person. He is a person, but now has become some kind of possession, your very own personal Jesus. This is but one way in which we have incorporated modernity with the Christian faith. This is much more subversive than any court decision might be. Tanya Marie Lurman is a professor of anthropology at Stanford and she, her research focuses, interestingly enough, on witches and evangelicals. Uh, interesting mix. Um, but she's written an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled "Belief Is the Least Part of Faith," in which she contends that evangelicals are not concerned with belief, but they are with faith. Interesting thought. Rather, they're they're concerned with fundamentally practical questions having to do with feeling God's love or being aware of God's presence. She argues that this is what evangelicals want, even though not all evangelicals have even decided whether or not God exists. That is to say, belief is is secondary and in many cases has nothing to do with one's religion or one's faith. So they put aside to one side the issue of belief. Doctrine, if you wish. What do you believe? That's not that important. Do you have faith? Do you have a religion, if you wish? Lerman and many cultural critics like her define religious belief as a matter of personal formation and social aspiration. It is not an endeavor to know and obey the truth. It's rather how you feel. And I I see the incident of the golden calf as being precisely that, that somehow the idea that God is invisible, that God is omnipresent, God is not represented by a golden image, is sort of pushed aside because people want to feel a sense of the presence of God. They want to worship God, and in fact, in their own twisted way, that is what they get up to do. Belief is set aside. What you believe to be right or wrong, that is set aside. And what is put in its place is some type of interior feeling that faith becomes simply a matter of how you feel. And we've talked about this before. In the modern world, it's called privatization. In which, in which one's faith is privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. So you can feel... Or, You go to church to feel something. Uh, You want to feel the presence of God. You may even pray to have a sense of his presence and his love. But as to what you believe, people don't seem that concerned about it. And this is far more destructive. This subversive, if you wish, encroachment or invasion of the church is far more uh, dangerous and destructive than any overt Activity. I mean, you read various blogs, people are, are predicting a wave of persecution that will come against the church. That may happen. But that's overt. That, in a sense, we can see coming. And in many ways, it's easier to stand up for one's faith when it is being attacked. It's something else when something sneaks in, comes in quietly. And suddenly becomes a part of your faith, even though it is contrary to your belief. That's what happens in Exodus 32. Contrary to their beliefs, but it became a part of their faith. Worshipping God with a golden image. This, I think, is what we need to be concerned with. This week, the Supreme Court made a monumental decision and which no doubt has caused many Christians great distress. And perhaps like Roe v. Wade, they will come to see it as a battle cry. I would suggest to you that we need to be more discerning, much more discerning. I think I've told you this story before, but if, not, if, if I have, bear with me. But it illustrates the point I'm trying to make. It's a story that Nikita Khrushchev used to tell used to be the premier of the Soviet Union. Uh, There was a time in the Soviet Union when there was a wave of petty thefts in the various factories. And so to curtail this problem, the Soviet authorities put guards, armed guards, at the gates of all the factories. And there was, at one particular place, a Timberworks factory in Leningrad, that they knew that stuff was being stolen and they just could not catch the culprit. So they put a guard who was specially trained. He would be able to sniff out whoever was stealing. The first evening, out comes one of the workers, Pyotr Petrovich, who is pushing a wheelbarrow. And on the wheelbarrow, there is a great bulky sack with a suspicious-looking object inside. All right, Petrovich, the guard said. What have you got there? Oh, just some sawdust and shavings, he answered. The guard said, come on, I wasn't born yesterday. Tip it out. And so Petrovich emptied out the bag and sure enough, all there was was sawdust and shavings. So he was allowed to put it back in the sack and go home. The same thing happened every night of that week. And the guard was ready to pull his hair out. He was so frustrated. And finally, his curiosity overcame his frustration. He said, Petrovich... I know you. I know you're stealing. Tell me what you're smuggling out of here. I will let you go. There will be no consequences. Just tell me, are you stealing something from the factory? And he said, yes, I am. He said, what are you stealing? And he said, wheelbarrows, my friend. Wheelbarrows. The guard had so focused on the bag and what was in it he thought that that's what was being stolen and it was in fact the vehicle that was being used to take this out that that's what was being stolen I think in the church we are so busy focusing on certain things that in the meantime subversive ideas come into the church and and wreak havoc I was raised in a tradition where we focus on externals the length of a man's hair or a woman's dress uh, things like that and in the process we became one of the most modern movements of modern time because we in fact did not see the subversive we were looking for the overt by God's grace and as a congregation as God's people together may we be given discernment and wisdom as we live in this world let's pray together Father I would confess that the tension is I think something I'd rather do without the idea of being in the world but not of the world be a lot easier if it was one or the other but here we are you've put us here your people the process of redemption of reclamation we live in a culture which does not share our beliefs and it is very tempting sometimes it happens without us being aware of it that we take on the ideas the notions the shapes of things from the surrounding culture we begin to focus on things that in the scheme of things ultimately are not that important some of them are but in the meantime destructive things come in and eat away at the heart of the church we are not wise enough on our own as individuals to see this As a congregation, we ask for wisdom because even as a community of believers, we are not wise enough by ourselves. You've not left us alone. You've given us your spirit. May he guide us. May we look to him for wisdom that as we seek to be salt in the world and light in the world, by your grace, we would be precisely that. syncretism is so much easier we want to be liked we don't want to be ostracized we don't want to be the heretics of our generation but in fact that's what we are may we look to you for strength and direction May we learn from the lesson of Israel the golden image that just needed something to see. May we look to you as our confidence. May we think about these things in the days to come. May we talk about them among ourselves. We pray for those that are traveling that you would give them safety for those that are struggling with health that you would touch them and now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place we pray this in Jesus name Amen